I think we should just adjourn and go to heaven after that. <laughs> Let me say we, here at San Ramon Valley Bible Church, we believe that music is for praising and worshiping God. It's a sacrifice of praise. We also believe that it's necessary to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God. And so with the same enthusiasm that we sing and praise God, we should come to the study of his word. The scripture says in 1 Peter 4:11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion. Forever and ever. And so if we can't go to heaven after hearing that singing, then I pray that God will help me to preach his word for the praise and dominion of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come into your presence and our hearts have been touched as we have been thinking and singing about the Lamb of God to whom all glory and praise and dominion forever is due. We lift up his name on high. We exalt him. We only meet in his name. We have been saved by him. And we tell you, even as we took this supper, the Lord's Supper this morning, even as we ate and drank, remembering his death for us on the cross, we did it in anticipation of seeing him. For you said to us that in doing this, we show forth the Lord's death till he come. And we want to tell you this, Lord. We want you to come. It would be wonderful if this Lord's Supper that we celebrated this morning were the last one. If this time of praise and worship and study of the scriptures were the last one. If today would be the day when he would come. And help us now to look into the scriptures through the illuminating ministry of your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us, whether it only be a few hours or a few days or whatever time is left before Jesus comes. Help us to walk with our Lord and Savior and to glorify him. We pray it in his blessed name. Amen. Now let's turn right away to Acts chapter 17. And I already told you the other night I'm going to be naughty. We're not going to finish Acts 17. You already know that anyway. You saw what pace we went through chapter 16. You know there's no way on earth I could finish chapter 17. We're going to read the first ten verses. First ten verses of Acts chapter 17. Where the Lord says, Now when they passed, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and one of the devout, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few, but... The Jews which believed not, 
moved with envy, took unto themselves certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, or as it says in the New American Standard, wicked men from the marketplace, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. Thus far the word of the Lord. As I read this passage, every time I read it and think about it, I'm reminded of a, if you tell about commercials, I guess you date yourself. Many years ago, I'll just say, there was a commercial about Timex watches. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And of course, they went out of their way. They exceeded themselves week by week with new uh, vistas of how Timex would work. And they would take it and strap it onto the leg of a horse in a rodeo. And the gate would fly open and the the bull would go running out or the calf and the horse would come behind it. Or maybe it was just a contest to see how long they could ride. And eventually, of course, the watch would go flying off and end up in the dirt somewhere. And the camera would zoom in on it. And there you would see the second hand still going around. And the man was so pleased. He would pick it up and hold it to the camera and say, Timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Paul and Silas take a licking and keep on ticking. That's what we got here. And now you can appreciate Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 10 in a light that perhaps you didn't see it before. Because we've been going, we've been walking through chapter 16 and we've been seeing the kind of things that they endured when they were in Philippi. And after that beating... After that treatment, to leave there and to go on and preach the gospel in another place, I know a lot of people would have said, listen, I think we need to have a prayer meeting, brothers. I think uh, the circumstances are telling us that maybe we made a wrong turn somewhere. Maybe we need to go back and start over and ask the Lord where we went wrong. Maybe we need to go back to Troas. Maybe we're not supposed to be here. Many people take suffering and difficulty and problems as an indication circumstantial is all it can be, that they're going the wrong way. Let me say this. God can use things like that to turn us around. But if God has shown you something in the light, don't doubt it in the darkness. The Lord came down from the mountain there on the far side of the Sea of Galilee and he took those men. He said, get into the boat and pass over to the other side. He went back up on the mountain to pray. What was God's will for those men? To go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in that boat. 
He went back up on the mountain to pray. And it said they put out to see. And it's really not that big. You know, I've lived in Israel, not years, but months. And, and we live very close to the Sea of Galilee. And we've been on it and driven around it and seen it from every angle you can see it from. It's not really that big. So the wind came up. The waves were such and the wind were such that in the fourth watch of the night, you see, they divided the night into four periods or four watches. And the last one is the one right before dawn, right when the sky is going to turn rosy. That's the last watch. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. They were still on the Sea of Galilee, rowing and toiling and trying to get to the other side. I think a lot of modern so-called Christians would have turned around after about two hours. Maybe after about 20 minutes. They would say, go back to shore. Now, you go up, John, or Peter, you run up on the mountain and ask the Lord, did he really mean for us to go across to the other side? Did he mean to do it now? What exact? But you see, it was all clear what the Lord had said to them. And when Paul went to Philippi, we had that back in chapter 16 and verse 10, Paul and those that were with him, after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. So they had it clear. They had it in the light. If God has given you something in the light, brother, sister, when the tough time comes, when the wind blows and the waves are up and you have to row hard and it seems like you're not making any progress, Don't let that question mark of doubt come up in your mind. And don't think about turning back. Don't doubt in the darkness what God showed you in the light. They had a chance to do that more than once in Philippi. And especially when they were in the dungeon. But they knew that they were in the will of God. And I would rather be in a dungeon in the will of God than in a palace out of it. You see. And this is where they were. And so when they leave Philippi... They go on. They pass on, it says in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We're going to call this verse devotion. Devotion. When you read this verse, at first glance, it just seems to be a verse, one of those, like you might read in the dietary code in the book of Leviticus and what you should eat or what you shouldn't eat or the genealogies and this one begat this one and he lived so many years and begat that one and well, when you have a little insomnia you get out those passages and uh, you sit there and read them for a few minutes and you fall right asleep you read a verse like this and you say well uh, I don't know what practical application I could get out of that for my life that that's just a an information verse That's just a verse that leads us to the next verse. It doesn't really say anything to my heart. I mean, I don't even know what an Amphipolis is. If one were to hit me in the head, I don't think I'd recognize it. An Amphipolis, an Apollonia, what is that, some kind of an Italian plate? They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And you say, fine, let's move on to the next verse. And I say, no, let's don't. There's devotion to Christ in this verse. Come with me for just a minute over into 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2.
verses 1 and 2, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully treated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. That means in very trying circumstances. After we suffered and were shamefully treated, we were what? We were bold. We were bold. They took a licking and kept on ticking. Kept on ticking. They couldn't be stopped. They couldn't turn back. Why? Because, first of all, they knew the Lord had called them. And secondly, because there burned in the hearts of these men devotion to Christ. They loved the Lord Jesus. They loved the gospel. And when you love the Lord, when he's not just a philosophical concept, when he's not just a historical uh, piece of historical data, when he is a real and living person with whom you have a relationship and you love him, that makes all the difference. Now, people whose Christianity is a matter of creeds and traditions, they are the first ones to bail out when trouble comes along. And more than one of the Lord's servants in our time has said, it may be time for the Lord to allow the professing church to go through suffering again in order to clean house, to get back down to the core of those who really believe in and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are not going to jump ship, those who are not going to turn back, those who are not going to get discouraged and throw in the towel. Because I tell you, brothers and sisters and friends who are visiting today, if anyone had had any doubt about who they were and what they were supposed to do and where they were going, when those kind of things happened to them in Philippi, you could color them gone. They would have been out of there. But they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. Why do I keep saying that? When you study the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, you see names like that, you shouldn't just go, Oh, well, let's go on to the next verse. In the back of many Bibles, they have a little thing that's called an MAP. You know what an MAP is? I was a pilot in the Air Force, and for, I used to tease the student pilots. I was a flight instructor. And we'd always tell them they had to be watching for other aircraft to not have a collision. And so sometimes when they were really engrossed in some task they were doing, I'd say, watch out, there's a GU-11 over there. And they would turn and look to see what it was. A GU-11, a gull, a bird, see, an MAP, a map, one of those little pieces of paper that has the names of towns all over it. And you go and you look and you see, and you say, now they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica. They started in Philippi and they ended up in Thessalonica. I wonder how far that is. About a hundred miles. After the beating that they took. After the beating that they took. When they, they were brought out of jail and when they had seen the brethren and comforted them, they hit the trail. They were gone. They were in condition, I tell you, to go to a hospital. They were in condition for a month, R&R and, and medical care and therapy. And they kept going. What is it that makes people behave this way 
Did they do it because they were afraid to quit because of what people would say about them? If that's all that motivates you, I tell you, you'll quit sooner or later. Did they do it because they wanted a prize? They wanted to be able to say, we're the first ones to go here and do that. If that's all that motivates you, you will soon find yourself on the bench in the spiritual life. They did it for love of Christ. And I say to you that verse 1 is a verse that talks to us about devotion to Christ. There was a love in their hearts burning for the person of Christ. There was a full persuasion of the power of the gospel of Christ to change people's lives. And they loved the Lord of the gospel. And they loved the gospel of their Lord. And so out they went and on they went to preach. They couldn't turn back. They're devoted. They traveled a great distance. And they traveled with great difficulty. Some people wouldn't go to a Bible study if it was in their front yard. I can do even better than that. I've been in some places where we've been sitting in their living room and they go into the bedroom and shut the door. One member of the house wants to have a Bible study, but the other one... When I was in Honduras... um, a couple of years ago, up into the mountains on the coastline, I went with a friend. It took us about three and a half hours walking on a trail like a horse trail. There are no roads, no lights, no water, running water. Well, running water, yeah, because they stick a pipe like PVC in a stream uphill from where they are in the mountain and bring it into the village. That's their running water. No electricity, no roads in anywhere. And so up we went this trail to this village to have a day of meetings, to spend the night and have a day of meetings, spend the night and come back down the next day. We had meetings all day long. We started about six in the morning. We got there about 10 with our tongues hanging out. You can imagine. And uh, they were all standing around. They had a little place, uh, a meeting place about as big as the center section of seats here. No, uh, no screens on the windows, no doors, uh, the doorway, but no doors on it. No lights in there. And they were all standing around. Oh, hermano, oh, hermano. They're saying, hello, brother, hello, brother. They were all waiting for us. And the man that I was traveling with said, well, I don't think we're going to get a half hour rest before we're going to have the first meeting. Give you something to drink and go right in and start meeting all day long, all day long. I finished in the evening. The sun went down about 7.30. And I was in the, the little meeting place. A brother standing beside me with a gas lantern. Holding it up. And another one standing at the back with a gas lantern. The people don't want to go home. Bugs flying all around. Preaching the gospel. In the darkness in the back, a man stands up and he says, I don't want to wait any longer. I want to accept the Lord right now. It was a wonderful day. And when it was over, they turned off the lights and they gave us a little flashlight. We had to walk back down the trail about 15 minutes to a hut where we were going to spend the night up in the mountains. And uh, I noticed there were some other people, about half a dozen, on the trail in front of us walking along. They had one flashlight, and they were walking along, and I said, who are those? And they said, oh, uh, there are some people who came from one of the next villages. 
I said, what do you mean one of the next villages? He said, well, there's about five villages up here. Ours is just one. And, and there's no meeting. There's no uh, church or testimony in their village. And they're believers. So they heard we were going to have a day of meeting. So they came. I said, uh, what's the name? They said, San Pedro. I said, how far away is it? They said, oh, about three hours walking. They walked over that morning. They got there before we did. I, because I didn't know they were. I just thought they were part of the village. They got there before we did. Three hours walking barefoot on a mountain trail in Honduras, up and down the mountain like this to come to us. And at night, when I went 15 minutes back to my little hut, they had a three-hour walk barefooted at night on the mountain trail. I know this sounds like the story your mother told you about how far she walked to school when she was a little girl. Three miles uphill in both directions in snow, right? But this is no joke. I saw this with my own eyes. And off they went. I said, Lord, forgive me for the times I said I can't go to meeting because I have the sniffles. I said, Lord, I need to be ashamed of myself. That if my car had a flat tire or I ran out of gas, I'd stay home. I wouldn't walk. I'd say, it's more than a mile to where they meet. You don't expect me to walk that. Except for when they go out on the the exercise trails, I think a lot of Americans have forgotten how to walk. Devotion we're talking about. And so I read about the devotion of these men who walked a hundred miles to preach the gospel. And I think about how some of us have such a difficult time. Now, if I'm stepping on your toes, you just bring them up here afterwards and I'll rub them and make them feel better. But if your toes got stepped on, maybe they needed to. Devotion. And not just to meet, like those believers were such an example to me. But I think about people who have this terrible attack of procrastination when it comes time to witness. They can't say a word for Christ. They got them sitting right next to them in the cubicle next to them or on the bench or they might be their next door neighbor. And they'd be there 10 years and they say, I'm building bridges with him. Man, you build a bridge big enough to take the whole first infantry across on. You're not even going to cross it. You're not building bridges. You're procrastinating. They walked 100 miles to preach the gospel. 100 miles they walked. 100 miles they walked with a backside that was in a condition that needed to be in the hospital. And they walked it. And when they got there, they didn't have a week off. They went right in and preached. So that's why I say when I read verse 1, and I think about everything that goes into verse 1, chapter 16, that we've been studying before, and we put that in there. And we look at it and we say, how did they do it? How did they do it? Well, they did it because they were just like this that we were thinking about. They took a licking and they kept on ticking because they loved Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Are you just fond of him? Or do you just admire him philosophically? Or are you just impressed with the things that he said and did? But do you love him? Do you love him? They did. The believers 
in chapter 16 that we saw in Philippi did. And before they leave Thessalonica, they're going to leave behind another group of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Christians have in common all over the world. They might speak a different language and they might use different forms of dress and they might meet in different places. But there's one thing they all have in common. I should say we all have in common. We love the Lord Jesus. The Lamb of God. That's verse 1. Verse 2, we're going to put 2 and 3 together. We're going to call them proclamation. So we're going from devotion that enabled them to travel in such a condition to proclamation. When they reached Thessalonica, it says here in verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This is proclamation. That's what he went there for. He didn't go to see if he could have some postcards from Thessalonica. He went there to preach the gospel. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what he went to do. That's what he went to do. And so, it says here in verse 2, we look at this, he found them. It says here, Paul, as his manner was, went in to them. He found them. Because if you're going to proclaim the gospel, if you're going to testify, if you're going to witness to Jesus, uh, to the saving power of Jesus Christ, you've got to find where the people are. See, they went to them. This is what the Lord said. At the end of the gospels, the four gospels, we have that commission of the Lord, don't we? To go out into the world, to go and to preach the gospel. Go is a word that they nearly only use uh, cheerleaders in, in basketball and football games now. Go, go, go. But that's what the Lord said that we should do. And that's what Paul did. He went and found them. You say, well, but I can't go to Thessalonica or some place. How about next door? How about in the room next to you? How about the person that sits next to you? That's not a very big distance, but sometimes those distances seem to us to be harder to traverse than the longer ones. See, he said this. He, as his manner was, went in unto them. And for three Sabbath days, a Sabbath is a Saturday, the seventh day, Shabbat. So he went that day and the following day and the following day. He got three turns with them. Reasoning to them out of the scriptures. But before we go into that, I want to think a little bit about what it says here when it says, as his manner was, he went in unto them. He found them. And when it says manner, the word is also uh, translated in some versions, his custom or his habit. And that's a good word. I want you to think with me for just a few minutes about the importance of developing good habits. Good habits. You know, some people, they get up on Sunday morning, about 9.30. They roll over in bed, and they look at the watch, they look at the clock. They look outside to see if it's raining. They lay there for a minute, and let's see, how do I feel? Do I have any hurts anywhere? <laughs> I wonder if I should go to the meeting today. And every Sunday, they have to make 
the decision because they haven't formed the habit. See? Now, am, am I getting too far away from the Scriptures when I say that? Am I twisting it a little bit? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. In the Gospels, it says, speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says, And when the Sabbath came, they found him in the synagogue teaching as was his custom, his habit. The Lord Jesus made it his habit. When that day came that the people met together to study the word of God, he was there. It wasn't a decision he had to make every week. It wasn't a decision that Paul had to make. Am I going to testify to them or not? Will the Lord lead me to do this? Man, what do you think he took you there for? The importance of developing good habits. And let's just think about a few of them. Let's think about the habit of devotional life. Reading the scriptures and praying. Someone said once, I must see the face of God before I see the face of man. I need to be in the word of God. I don't know what the world has waiting for me out there today. I don't know what life is going to do to me today. But I know someone who's in control. And I know someone who promised to be with me all the way. And I need to start the day with him. So when we talk about having devotions, we're not talking about a little religious tradition that you go through. We're talking about having fellowship with the Lord. We're talking about reading his word. Be quiet and be still and let the Lord talk to you. A few minutes reading some portion of his word. Let him speak. Let him speak first. Be polite. And then you pray. You pray. And you talk to the Lord about the things you read. And if there's something you don't, didn't understand, you ask him to explain it to you. How can he do that? Well, go on and ask him and find out. He can. Devotions. Did they do this in the Old Testament? Abraham, it says in the book of Genesis, Abraham went up from the place where he had been speaking with God. Do you have a place like that? Daniel went into the room. He opened up his windows and it says after they he knew they had made the decree. And what did he do? Three times a day he prayed and worshipped God, the God of heaven. He was a man who lived in fellowship with God. He had time to read the scriptures and to pray. And even when they told him it was against the law to do it, he did it. The Lord Jesus He went out in Mark chapter 1. It says a great while before day, a long time before the morning came, before the sky turned rosy. They looked for him in Peter's house and he wasn't there. He said he went out into the deserted places. He went out to get out of the house, to get away from distractions. They said they found him out there praying before the day began. So that's a good habit. A devotional time, beginning the day by reading and praying, is a habit that godly people have developed and maintained over the centuries. Since Old Testament times, men that God has used have been men who have spent time with God and in his presence. They have not been too busy for God. And if you're too busy for God, you're too busy 
That's a good habit. Witnessing. We've been talking about that and we have it here. Witnessing is a good habit. It's a habit that a lot of people haven't cultivated. And you have to work to cultivate habits. Weeds grow without you cultivating them. But, but fruits and vegetables have to be cultivated. There has to be some expenditure of energy, of effort on your part to maintain it, to take care of it, you see. And so Paul has this habit as his custom was, as his habit, his manner was. He went into them. He was accustomed to doing this. Seems like with many other things, as far as witnessing goes, the hardest thing is just to get started sometimes. To just develop the habit, not once a year, but to just develop the habit of speaking to people, bring God into the conversation, bring the scriptures, bring the person of Christ into the conversation. It doesn't mean you have to stand there and preach a 10-minute sermonette to a person. You just bring them in. The Spanish have a beautiful way of saying this. They say, entre col y col lechuga. Who speaks Spanish here today? Melissa knows a few people know what I mean. And they're talking about planting in the garden. Col is cabbage. It's the entre col between cabbage and cabbage lettuce. You're going along planting and you got a little space there and you just stick it in. Stick in a little lettuce plant right there. Entre col y col lechuga. It means to just slip things in, to find a little opening, to find a little space and slip it in. To get it in there. Doesn't have to be much. But any little word said for the Lord is better than silence. You see. As his manner was. And he had a lot to say. You say, well, I can't reason like him. I can't do like Paul. You don't have to do like Paul did. The Lord asks you to do what you can do. He asks you to say what you can say. Not what other people could have said, but what you can say about him. What does he mean to you personally? That's what means something to him, and it means something to other people. They'll listen to you if they know you're not just uh, discharging a religious duty, but you're talking to them about something that is precious to your heart, you see. It doesn't have to be long. It could just be a word. It could just be a comment. But get it in there. Entre col y col, let you go. Slip it in. Paul did a lot more than that here. But there's the custom, the habit of devotions, spending time with God. There's the custom and the habit of witnessing. And I put them in this order on purpose because if you're not spending time in the presence of God, you're not going to have very much power or enthusiasm. You won't have any spiritual initiative when it comes time to speak for him if you haven't been in his presence. Of the fullness of the heart, The mouth speaks, says the scriptures. Some people open their mouth and a car jumps out. Some people open their mouth and the San Francisco Giants jump out. Some people, I know, I'm meddling now. Some people open their mouth and I like baseball and I like football, but it's not my life and it's not my love. It was before I got saved because I didn't have anything else. So I gave myself to all the things everybody else gives themselves to. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want there to be some water in the well when you let down the bucket, you got to dig the well. you got to dig it deep. you got to make sure there's something there that can be filled with water. You see? And so you're digging your relationship with the Lord. You're reading His Word. You're praying. You're spending time thinking about Him. You're learning when you come. You take away, you say, Lord, I'm not ever going to go to a meeting when I don't go away with something for me, even if it's just one little thing, 
Say something to me. Talk to me. Tell me something. Touch something in my life. Meet with me. I need you. And you're growing and your well is going deeper. And when that happens, well, then when you let down the bucket, there'll be something in there for you to bring up and give to people. But when all that you do with your time is what everybody else in the world does, you let down the bucket and, it's, and all that's going to come up is the latest sports scores or stock market report. Because that's all you've been thinking about. Develop good habits, as was his custom, it says. The Lord's custom, meeting with the people who met to study the Scriptures, as was his custom was. And I'm coming back to what I said in the beginning. Don't get up in the morning and open your eyes and stretch around and see how you feel and try to make that decision for that day. Brother, sister, for me, that decision was made the day I got saved. From then on, and not just me, you're going to see it right here. We're going to move along because I, I want to get to it and I want you to see it here. Now, Paul, as he, as he spoke to them, it says here, as his manner was, he went into them, he found them where they were, and he reasoned with them. It says, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. There's all kinds of reasoning, but this is the kind that's valid when we are speaking about spiritual things. Reason out of the scriptures. If you're not coming from there, you're not on the right page, see. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ, he said. Now, we got four words here that we need to think about in this section. The first one is reason. The second, I'm reading it to you from the King James, but I'll give you the other words here. This, and the next one is opening. In verse 3, opening, what does that mean? Well, I think your version says explain, doesn't it? If you're reading the New American Standard. Uh, then it says allege. That means to give evidence. And then the last word is preach. Reason, open, allege, and preach. Those are the four words he used to describe what Paul did when he met with these people. He reasoned, he opened, he alleged, and he preached. Now, what are those? And how do we do that? To reason means to, to think out loud, to discuss or to dispute out loud, to think and to proceed in such a way as to persuade people as to the reasonableness of something. Some people call this give and take. You know, he would say something, he would, he would give it out, and then he would listen to what they thought. He would see if they had an objection, and then he would answer it in a reasonable way. He reasoned with them, but it's out of the scriptures. Now, think about this with me for a minute. He's doing this out of the scriptures. He's, he's presenting certain things to them that he believes are reasonable from the scriptures. And those things all have to do with the person and the work of Christ. He reasons with them out of what were the scriptures, by the way, then. The Old Testament is all he had. Could you do that? If I took away your New Testament this morning, could you preach the gospel? Could you present the gospel clearly with just the Old Testament? That's all he had to show them. The New Testament was in the process of being written, but there was the, the book, the compilation of these books, the gospels and acts, 
and the epistles and revelation was not complete yet. It wasn't, he didn't have it in his hand. It wasn't printed by the United Bible Societies yet. That wasn't around yet. So he had the Old Testament. What did he use? Well, this morning in the Bible verse, the Bible memory class, I thought that was really interesting. The verse that touched today goes right along with what I was thinking about. Isaiah 53. 700 years before Christ, those words were written. You're going to tell me that's a coincidence? I'm going to say to you, wake up. 700 years before Christ. And it's written as if someone, a reporter, were standing there writing it down and describing it as it happened. Because that's what the prophets were able to do. That's one of the proofs that the Bible has of its validity that other books do not have. There, there are no prophecies to be fulfilled in the Quran. There, there's nothing there where you can say they said this and it came to pass just as they said. And in other books, the same problem. But the scriptures have this. They're full of it. And so he's in the Old Testament, of course, because that's all the scriptures they had. And he's referring to different scriptures. And there are more than Isaiah 53. But I say that because that's perhaps one of the easiest for us to recognize. And we're reading about one who suffered because other people went astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isn't that the problem of the human race? Everybody wants their own way. Everyone to his own way. Everyone wants to do what he thinks, what he, what he feels is right. And that, living for self-will, is what the prophet describes as sin in the Old Testament. We have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There's something better to live for. And don't, don't uh, misunderstand me here. It's not to live for my will. <laughs> I'm not here to impose my will on anybody. My will isn't any better than anybody else's. There is a divine will. The one who made us. Who created us. Who knows us and loves us. Has a plan for our lives. See. We live for him. But all we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid Placed on him the iniquity of us all. And so he would go back to the book of Isaiah and he would read it to him. He would take it in the synagogue and he would read to them the scriptures. I'm just saying if that's what he used. We'd take that as an example. And he would say, now, the Lord says here by the prophet that he's going to lay our iniquities on someone. Who is that? He's reasoning with them. Someone is going to come and he's going to take all of our iniquities. They're going to be placed on him, laid on him. Who is that? See, a lot of people don't understand even today about Jesus Christ. They think Jesus came uh, to show us uh, that he loves us. Well, he did show us that he loves us. And nobody could ever do it like he did. But he didn't come to show us that he loved us. He didn't come just to heal the brokenhearted, as we say, to help people get over their emotional crises. He didn't just come for that. He came to deal, and if you read the book of Romans, you see this. He came to deal with a judicial question. A judicial question. The, the book of Romans says in chapter 1 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is proclaimed. See, justice, that's another word for righteousness. 
The justice of God is proclaimed in the gospel. We did wrong. We sinned. We violated God's law. We rebelled against him and every thought and every deed of our selfish little pitiful lives goes against the divine will that is only good and perfect and acceptable. All we like sheep have gone astray, but you need to come to see this. Forget about the all we and say, Lord, you're talking about me, aren't you? You're talking about me. I went astray. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. But the Lord's sheep went astray and he knows where to find them. He does. And he found them. When Isaiah talks about guilt and iniquity being put on someone, he's talking about this. He's talking about why Christ came. He came to be the sin offering for us, to take the penalty for our sins, to bear, as 1 Peter 2 says in verse 24, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. When he suffered on the Christ, and that's why he was, he came to the earth. That's why he was incarnate. God took upon himself a body, it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. When he came into the world. Don't ever listen to people who try to get you to think that maybe Jesus had to one day discover that he was the Messiah. They call it messianic consciousness. And it goes under a lot of other titles. But I dispatch it very simply. Hebrews 10.5 When he comes into the world, he says... Now, how old was he when he came into the world? Now, see, what I'm doing with you is I'm reasoning. We're opening the Scriptures and we're reasoning. We're thinking logically. How old was he? When he came into the world. When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body have you prepared me. Did he know when he came into the world who he was and why he came and what he was going to do? The scripture says he does. He did. He said, well, I don't understand it all. But you don't have to understand it all. You just have to trust God who knows more than you do. And he knows more than I do. It's such a relief to be able to read the scriptures and say, okay, like they sang the other night, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I don't have to give it any more turns around in my mind. That's what God said. Surely, if anybody knows what he's talking about, he does. And so, he opened and he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. About what? About what we're talking about. About Christ coming to the, to the world. Coming into the world. Taking a body upon himself. About him coming so that that body could be the vehicle uh, on which all of our sins were laid. The sacrifice. And he would go back maybe to Exodus 12 and he would talk about the Passover lamb. He would talk about coming out of Egypt and how they put the blood over the door to protect those households. He would take those scriptures and he would apply them and he would say, all of those things, brethren, are simply illustrations in the Old Testament that lead us to the place where, the, where one comes who fulfills all of those things. Christ the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Isn't that what he was called? Didn't John the Baptist say that when he pointed to him in public? In John, the Gospel of John, he said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. They've seen a lot of lambs, but they had never seen God's lamb. And there he was. So this is what Paul is doing. He's reasoning with them out of the scriptures. He's using the scriptures. And this is why I say you need to read the Bible. You need to memorize scripture. You, when you have free time, you need to read the Bible. And, and I am, I might as well be honest with you about it. There's no reason to leave it in the fine print. I am not at all a friend of television. And I'll tell you why. Because it has ruined the spiritual life. It has sucked out and polluted the minds of so many people. My grandfather, God bless him, when I was growing up, he used to sit. He had uh, what he called uh, a reading chair. He had a little chair or an easy chair in his house and a lamp on a post beside it. And when he'd come in from working at the railway station, he'd uh, get cleaned up and maybe he'd go out and do something in his garden for a few minutes. And then pretty soon you'd see him sitting in that chair. He'd turn on the lamp and that was his entertainment. He had a little table, and on that table he had his Bible and some Christian book he was reading. He'd pick up the Christian book and the Bible. He'd read along. Maybe it was Ironside's commentary on something. He had those. And he would read, and then pretty soon he'd come to a screen. He'd put that down, and he'd pick up his Bible, and he'd look at that. He was enjoying himself. That was back before CNN. This is what I'm saying. Let me see if I can make this clear so you don't misunderstand me. There are some things that are good, interesting. They're not harmful. They're not wicked. But even those things, when we give ourselves to them, we're robbing ourselves of time that we could be spending with something better. And that's why someone said one time, the good is often the enemy of the best. You see? Do you have a place where you can sit And read the scriptures? Do you find that to be your entertainment? Does your mind, does your spirit so crave the things that the world dangles out there in front of you for entertainment that you just can't drag yourself away from it to read the scriptures? But you're never going to be able to reason out of the scriptures like Paul did if you're not in them. We have to read them. We have to live in the book. So that when we open our mouths, this is what's going to come out. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He opened and alleged. That means he explained. And the word for explain there is the word we get our word dialogue from. He explained to them. And so that would be given again, room for give and take. He would say something and they would say something. But his answer would be, his uh, words to them would be to explain or to clarify some concept. That he could see that they didn't understand. Opening and alleging. Alleging means to give evidence. And so he would take the Old Testament scriptures and he would set them here. He'd say, this is what the prophet says. And then you lay down beside it. You say, and this is how it was fulfilled. Alleging. Giving evidence. This is what the prophet said. This is how it was fulfilled. And he's opening the eyes of their understanding. And as far as you can say that of any human being, we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. But I'll tell you, he uses human messengers. And this is one of them before us today in Acts chapter 17. And that this Jesus, because Jesus was a common name, this Jesus, Jesus, Joshua, same name. Those names were common. 
Jesus is a common name in the Spanish-speaking world even today. And so when he said this Jesus, that's what he meant, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who went to the cross and died. He said, that's the one I'm talking to you about. He's the Christ. And what was it that he was saying about him all this time? He said, he must needs have suffered or he needed to, or you could say it was necessary that Christ suffer. It was necessary. The Lord said that. Uh, when he walked with the disciples back in Luke chapter 24, beginning at Moses, Luke 24, uh, 20, 25, he said, Then said he to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? It was necessary for him to suffer. Why? Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead? Not for him, but for you and me. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was necessary because if he didn't do it, we couldn't be saved. Because if he didn't take our penalty, our judgment upon him, and go and suffer it for us, then we would have to suffer it ourselves. And then he wouldn't be our Savior. We would just be condemned and be lost forever. But if he's going to be Christ our Savior and Lord, he's going to have to come and take our place. And that's what he did when he died on the cross. It was necessary for him to suffer. And he says, and this Jesus whom I preach to you is, is the Christ. He's that one the prophet spoke about. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's him. He's the one who did that. And what was their response? This is his proclamation in verses 2 and 3. And what was their response? Look at verse 4. We're going to call verse 4 conversion. Devotion, proclamation, conversion. It says, and some of them believed, some versions say, and were persuaded, which is good, but it's the same thing. It's a synonym for the word believe. See? Some of them believed and, and I, I like the King James here, but the word is a little bit obscure for some people today. It says they believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. Some versions say they joined themselves to them. That's good. Birds of a feather stick together. How do you know they believed? I didn't say everybody believed, did it? Some believed. Everyone is not going to believe. God offers the gospel to everyone, but as we were reminded the other day, God does not coerce the human will. He allows you to decide. And everyone here today is free to decide and free to live with the consequences of his decision. That goes with it. You're free to decide for yourself, and you're free to live with the consequences of your decision. See, that's the way God does it. Some of them believed. And the way you could tell they believed, and the way you can still tell that people believe today, is that they come together with the Christians. It says they joined themselves to Paul and Silas. They stuck to them like glue. They had new friends. 
They had new family. They had new fellowship. Nobody told them, all right, now, if you're going to say you're a believer, you've got to be here tomorrow morning at such and such an hour. And you got No, it's just like the cat on the south, in the south, the old homes with the screen doors, and the cat wants to come in, and you don't let it in. He jumps up on the screen door. And every time you go out to open the door, the cat's hanging there. He's trying to get into the house. This is the way they were. They joined themselves to them. They came because they wanted to. You hear what I'm saying? Because they wanted to. See, nobody's making them. This is not a rule for membership. This is a desire of the heart of the person who is born again. And so they joined to Paul and Silas. Of uh, the devout Greeks, it says a great multitude. What does it mean, a devout Greek? Well, these were the proselytes. These were the people uh, who were not Jews who were meeting there in the synagogue, listening and learning about Judaism. And Paul came in, you might say, we say in Spanish, Alquite. He came in and he took them away. He came into the synagogue and he, he preached about Messiah. He told them who Messiah was. And here are these these uh, these Gentile proselytes are all there. They're supposed to be learning about Judaism. And they hear him and they say, oh, he's the Messiah. And they believe in him. And they're out of the synagogue. That's going to cause problems in the, in the next verse. Of the Greeks or the devout Greeks or the proselytes, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. So once again, the women are coming out in good light here, aren't they? And these are leading women. These are women from important families in the city. Women who occupied uh, positions in, in key families in that city there. Chief women. Uh, the word means uh, of an important or a high category. And this is what they are. And it says, not a few. So right now they have a nucleus. And they're going to meet together. But they got a problem. Because like we said the other night, and after you read chapter 16, you ought to already know what's coming. The devil, he's always on the job, isn't he? He doesn't get discouraged like we do. He comes back again, and again, he does not take no for an answer. See? The Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, certain wicked men from the marketplace, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Verses 5 to 9 we're going to call opposition. Opposition. And we're just going to go through this real quick. You being so patient and I'm being so mean making you sit here. Opposition. Look at what they did, these rascals. See, the nobility of the city apparently uh, was favorable toward them. But they, so they went out. Who, who's causing the problem here? The unbelievers. The Jews out of that synagogue. They saw this man come in and he reasoned with him. And out went all the proselytes, all the devout Greeks. They all went out and chief women of the city. And some of the Jews like Jason himself... And Paul did with Jason what he did with Lydia in Philippi. What did he do there? He went into Lydia's house and stayed. What did he do here? He went into Jason's house and stayed. Jason showed them hospitality. That's one of the signs of a believer, that he opens his home and shares what he has. And he took them in. So what do these fellows do? Well, their chief motivation here, their chief problem is that they don't believe. They believed not. And when you don't believe, that causes all sorts of problems. All of those grumblings and growlings and attitudes, that's all from not believing. See, that's just a symptom. That's just the fruit on the tree. But the, the root 
of the problem is not believing. That's what causes all of this, you see. And so then, they, because they don't believe, they give in to another thing. Galatians 5 says that envy is one of the works of the flesh. That's one of the things about the, the fallen nature of people who are not born again. Envy. What is envy? Envy is a feeling of dissatisfaction or disgust while observing the blessing or the good done to others. That's what it is. You don't like it because he got it and you didn't. You don't like to see them happy and then well, he got a new car. Oh, he can't afford that. What you really mean is, I wish I had it. That's envy. The Old Testament says envy is the rottenness of the bones. That's like saying it's bone cancer. Envy. Well, let me tell you what the solution is. I'm not talking about the car. The solution is you trust the Lord too. Don't sit there with that long face. Trust the Lord too. And he'll be yours. There's enough of him to go around. Everybody can have all of him. You see, there's room for you in the family of God. But they didn't want to. They want to say, we say in Spanish, que ni comen ni dejan comer. They didn't want to eat. They didn't want to let anybody else eat. They didn't want to believe in him. They didn't want anybody else to believe in him. And so they're moved with envy. And out they go and they find, they go out and who do they find? Oh, they find this class of people that's always out there. I don't have anything to lean on over here. They're always out there hanging around the marketplace. You know, their their job in the city is to hold up the walls and the light posts. You know? And that's all they're doing, hanging around. And they're not out in the marketplace like some went in the parables. They went out to be there to be hired and to, to be taken to, they were looking for, for work. They were day laborers. But these weren't, all the day laborers were already gone. These were the bums. These were the scoundrels. These are the winos. They're just hanging around out there, troublemakers. And so what do they do? They come out there and they get them up and they say, you see those men? They came in there and they took all our people out. They took them with them. Those men are from, from somewhere. They, they probably made trouble in another city. We need to go. Can y'all help us? And they give them some money. And they get up and they say, that's right. We're going out there to get them. They don't even know what they're talking about. Let's go. Let's go. And they're all up all of a sudden. They're like a bunch of dogs. Somebody went into a yard and stirred them all up. And all of a sudden, rah, 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 and they're all barking. They don't know what it's all about yet. So they got lewd men of the baser sort. These wicked men from the marketplace. They gathered up a company. They put all the city on uproar. And then what they do? They assaulted the house of Jason. It didn't say they went up there and said, ding dong. Uh, could we talk to Jason, please? Boom, 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 on the door and in the windows and everything else. Said they're going to drag them out. They sought to bring them out to the people. That doesn't mean, would you mind coming with me, please? That's not even the formality of you're under arrest. Just grab them by the throat and drag them out there. This is what they're going to do. But now look at They did all that. And then in verse 6, they couldn't find him, so they took Jason, who was guilty of hospitality. They took him and certain brethren to the rulers of the city. And they blamed them with causing the uproar. They caused the uproar. And they assaulted the house of this man with violent intentions. And then they said in verse 6, These that have turned the world upside down 
have come here also. These troublemakers and riot causers have come here also. Boy, aren't they clever. Mr. McDonald would say they were bit by a fox. So they came here, Mr. Ironside said. They didn't turn the world upside down. Ever since sin entered the human race, the world has been upside down. And everywhere the apostles went, they turned it right side up. But it had been upside down so long, people were confused. (laughs) And they accused them of turning it upside down. And it was exactly the opposite. They accused them of doing that. They accused them in verse 7. They accused Jason of receiving them, whom Jason has received. Can you believe he did that? He took in these criminals, these fugitives from justice. He took them in. And that's the picture they're painting. And then they said, and I like this. These do all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Well, there are a lot of things they didn't understand about the gospel, which is obvious when you go through it. There's one thing they did understand. And before I let you go today, I'm going to tell you, you need to understand this too. If you already understand it, praise God for that. But if you didn't, it's time for the lights to come on. There is a king, and his name is Jesus. He's not just your buddy, he's a king. He's a king. Colossians 1 and verse 13 says, when he speaks about God, he says, who translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. And you're not saved. I'll say it like we say in the South. You ain't saved if you don't have Jesus as your king. You see, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not our friend or brother, Jesus Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is king. See? And there were a lot of things they didn't understand. But when they said this, and of course, they said it, they tried to focus it in a political sense. They tried to say, they heard them talking about the lordship of Christ, or Christ ruling over the lives, and and being the king of his people, or something along those lines they heard. And they tried to focus it, saying, he's going to get us in trouble with the Romans. He's trying to get rid of Caesar. They misunderstood it all, didn't they? They're talking about being king of a life, not king of a country. Is Jesus Christ the king of your life? King of my life? Can you sing that hymn? I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. That's where you earn the right to be your king. And you will always make a mess of your life as long as you run it. And that's why you have problems. But if you turn it over to King Jesus, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I tell you, he knows how to run a life. He knows how to save a life. He knows how to bring it back from ashes and ruin. He knows how to make it right. He can do it. There is a king. There is a king. We're not going to hide it. There is another king. And he said another. They were thinking about Caesar. But I'm thinking about you. You've been king of your life. Somebody else has been moved in and been king of your life. But we're here today to tell you there's another king. And he's the only one. 
that has the right to be the king of your life and the only one who can do it right, another king, Jesus. But with these words focused in a political sense, they troubled the city. They did. They troubled the people and the rulers of the city. Why? Because the people thought, oh, well, if the Romans hear about this, they'll come in here and they'll take away our charter. They'll come in here with their army. They're going to find out who's setting themselves up against Caesar. They were clever. They got it all twisted around the wrong way so that the city would be against these men who were only doing the city the best and only good that had ever been done to it. They were preaching the gospel. They were troubled. And they've taken security, it says in verse 9, of Jason and the other. They let them go. What is security? It's a bond. It's a, the word really is a word that means satisfaction. They took something in satisfaction from them. What does it mean? Well, it means they posted bond. And the idea was they made some kind of a payment, gave something as security, along with their word that these men would not trouble the city anymore. That's what happened. They let them go. And in verse 10, you see, we've gone through devotion and proclamation and conversion and opposition. And now we come to verse 10 and we come to separation. And it says, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night to Berea. What would happen here if, like in Thessalonica, you woke up tomorrow morning and the person or persons who had taught you so faithfully the Scriptures were gone? I'm not wishing it on you. Don't read into this anything that isn't there. But you let it search your heart. What do the Thessalonians do? Was that the end of the church? Was it the end of the Philippian church when Paul left? Was it the end of the Thessalonian church when Paul and Silas left? Did he not say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 to 8, he said that, uh, that they received the word and he says, and from you the word went forth into all ages so that we have no need to give testimony for they themselves testify of you. He said, well, I don't even have to go and tell people when I go somewhere about the church in Thessalonica because I open my mouth and they say, oh, we already heard about them. He called them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 a model church. That they were a, an example to the believers. And that was without the apostle being there. Sometimes the Lord allows a person who has meant something to us to be taken out of our lives. For two reasons. One, to test us. To test our devotion to him. And secondly, to cause us to grow and to give us an opportunity to fill in the gap. To stand up and be counted. And to go on. Churches that are built around people are doomed to fail. Churches that are built around the person of Jesus Christ are blessed and will continue. And I'm not trying to make innuendos here because I've been with you enough to know, or at least I think I know, that you're here because you love the Lord Jesus. And I see how you love one another, too, and I'm grateful for that. But let me ask you, what's your devotion to Christ? Would you be here to meet with Him, even if someone else were gone? Are you committed? 
Can the Lord count on you as part of his testimony here in San Ramon? Can he? This is what he wants. The Thessalonian believers were the example. They were the lighthouse by which the word of God went out all around. This is what I pray and desire for you, that you will be the same. God bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus and we give thanks for this time together. We give thanks that you have kept us together, that you have enabled us to go through these precious verses of your word. We give you thanks for this book, as the poet said, of wondrous heights and depths and glories ever new, which in 10,000 various lights brings Jesus into view. We thank you for the scriptures. Apply them by your Holy Spirit to our lives. Give us strength and encouragement. And we pray for those people, our friends and family and others who need to have the Lord Jesus as king of their life. May they crown him king of their life today. Dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.